Cyber Insiders from Adama. Hello and welcome to Cyber Insiders, the podcast that shines a light on what it's really like to work in the world of cybersecurity. I'm John Maynard, Chief Executive at Adama. And I'm Joe Gilhooly, Chief Marketing Officer. In this episode of Cyber Insiders, we have Rob Black, Director of the UK Cyber 912 Strategy Challenge. Rob is an expert in cyber warfare, cyber deception, cyber resilience, and cyber strategy. From planning multinational naval operations, combating piracy, to lecturing on legalities of cyber operations and the use of social technologies, he's had quite a unique career path. We're delighted to have Rob with us today to discuss cyber warfare, building a proactive cyber defense, and combating the digital skills gap. Rob, we're going to spend a bit of time obviously talking about your uh, professional background, your experiences. Uh, you, ha- you have to answer this question only with your personal experiences. Okay. What is your most underrated skill that you think everyone listening to this podcast can benefit from? Remember, personal experience only. That's a tough question. Um, I think I would have to um, confess to having a previous career where I had to dress up as a, a, a six I'm really foot not co- sure where this is going to go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a, a six foot giant um, bear. Um, and in particular, I had to perform a butt wiggle. Um, so I think my unique skill and underrated skill is to bring joy to the world with a butt wiggle. And is there a definition of uh, such a butt wiggle? Um, Please there, don't do it in this room. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, there, there are repeated evidence of it. Um, so I was the charming, chair, charming bear representative on the south coast of England for a few months. So for those of you who want to see a really good butt wiggle, I wouldn't suggest looking at mine. I would encourage you to see some of the old charming adverts to see the, the butt wiggle there. I believe our listeners will be really pleased to know that this is um, only available on audio. That's a relief. <laughs> and I just want to clarify, I'm not sponsored by Charming. <laughs> Although I'm happy to be entertained if that's a I conversation they want to have. I was not expecting that. <laughs> yeah, no, that <laughs> not is expecting a, that. Clearly, that's a future career that's open to you. Rob, warm welcome to the Cyber Insiders podcast. Um, as I mentioned at the start, you've had a very interesting and unique background, whether it's from chasing pirates to influencing world leaders. Tell us a bit about your work in the Ministry of Defence and how this has kind of shaped your career in cybersecurity. Well, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, thank you very much for hosting me today. Um, I guess my, my background's slightly different to the usual uh, career in cyber and I don't think I was actually conscious of what a career in cyber would look like when I started with the MAD. But most of my time in that role was helping them think about difficult problems and those complex issues that they were having to face and having to address probably for the first time as the international society evolved and and we were grappling with these transnational threats or whatever they might be. What I did realise during my time working in the MOD was that quite significantly cyber and the virtual domain was going to shape how society interacted. And as a, a vehicle for individuals and groups of individuals meeting, connecting, sharing knowledge, this was going to be a game changer. In the military, we have a phrase of revolution of military affairs, but this was a revolution of societal affairs and this was going to change the way we approached everything. And so for me, I think there was probably a decision point in about 2010, around then, that I suddenly realised I could get paid for playing on the internet and dealing with these issues. <laughs> and that seemed pretty good, to be honest. So I'd always had exciting work problems to deal with, and this seemed to be the next logical step. Rob, having seen you present, having seen you lecture on on the subject of deception, which is your, your kind of, your specialism, you know, you use computer gaming and the gaming philosophy as a way of articulating some of these... Um, some of these uh, frameworks and the and how you deploy deception within a proactive cyber defense. I'd love your I'd love your take on that, please. Uh, well, I guess ultimately, I think computer games are a great example of that virtual domain 
um, dominating the physical domain. So individuals are playing computer games to the point where they're causing themselves physical harm for not, you know, not not getting some sleep, not eating enough. And, you know, there's stories of different parts of the world where individuals actually died from playing computer games for too long. So this is a perfect example where our own physical restraints or constraints are actually being challenged by this this virtual domain as a whole. To me, it highlights the opportunity of influence there, whether it be deception or not, the opportunity to influence an individual's own processes, thought making or decision-making thoughts and so on, and the ability to understand what's going on in the world through a purely man-made virtual interaction. So in a similar way to Hollywood films, we've all sat and watched Hollywood films and been petrified by something, been scared by something. We've felt the emotion of a particular storyline and so on. And that's real. We're feeling that for real as an individual, but it's been triggered by man-made synthetic activities and interaction with us. So it's shaping our understanding, our sense of Some of, the of them uh, look very real, Rob. Yep. Uh, they do. <laughs> they do. <laughs> uh, it's difficult to work them out sometimes. Um, but I think that's really exciting. So if you think about the participation in the computer game, there's a challenge there. There's an opportunity to take it on. There's an opportunity to get frustrated and annoyed. And in, in particular, I was really interested as a um, Japanese game designer who talks about rage quitting. And the idea he's focus is on pushing the individual so far that they just end up having a tantrum and not being able to complete the level and not getting past that big baddie. And for me, that's really interesting because that is shaping their ability to understand, respond and behave through the virtual domain. That just doesn't seem to come across in cybersecurity. And I think there's a real scope from bringing that in. How are we doing that to our attackers? What are we doing to make them really think about whether they want to proceed or get upset about proceeding? There's lots of research we need to do around that to manage any risks. You could trigger and, and stimulate a, a greater response. But none of that seems to be common standard in our default thinking about dealing with the adversary, dealing with the threat, because we focus on the technical. We don't think about the fact there's a, a decision-making process, an emotive process, an ability to make sense of what's going on in the attacker or in the group of attackers. How are we exploiting that? Not necessarily computer games, but one of the universal things in the UK is you don't talk about your salary with your colleagues. Why? Because it creates divisiveness between the teams. Is that not something we could stimulate and trigger within the attacking teams, get them to think that one person's getting treated differently than the other and that he, he's the favorite person in the team, the boss really likes him compared to that person? Why couldn't we just tease that out a little bit so they actually started infighting a little bit more? And again, at that point, you're picking up on frictions and opportunities to influence and shape their cohesiveness. You're obviously a real proponent of adopting a proactive cyber defense strategy. Can you give us or share some practical applications for security teams working in both the public and private sectors as they kind of think about this? And I think, Joe, just just on that, you know, clarifying some of the terms, right? We talk about defensive, off, you know, offensive. We talk about reactive and proactive, maybe clearing some of that up as well. I guess for me, there's a lot of weight associated with some of these terms, particularly when we move into aggressiveness in cyber defense because the questions start coming in well, are you hacking back are you provoking and so on um, and, I, and i think there's a lot we can do before we even move into that space but i think it also does involve us inquiring of where those lines are for us as well what do we actually mean by those activities so so for me a proactive cyber defense strategy is quite simply a strategy that is looking at recognizing there is going to be an engagement with the adversary everyone talks about not if but when okay so the reality of it it's a when. So let's not just celebrate the fact that we survived the attack. Let's celebrate the fact that we're ready to engage. And actually, that brings a lot of military thinking, a lot of military mindset. From, you know, the military guys go outside of their base, they know they're going to get attacked. If they're in a hostile environment, it's pretty likely. So they plan and they adopt their activities around that. So if we're in that situation where we know we're going to get attacked, what are we doing to manage that interaction? So we've got activities we can do outside the wire in terms of 
protecting our, our site so that they don't attack us or we put the walls up to stop them getting in. But actually, what are we doing inside the wire? Or what are we doing outside the wire that shapes what they're doing inside the wire as well? So what can we do to shape their expectation when they get inside so it's already working in our favor? And there's been some really exciting research conducted by the NSA over in the, in the US where they told pen testers that they were using to attack networks, they told them that deception was being used. Nothing more than that. And that led to every single activity slowing down because they had to double guess everything. They had to think about it. Well, that looks too obviously fake. That's going to be the honeypot. That obviously is a bit of a plant. That looks too wrong. Well, this is interesting because I wouldn't expect that there. So I'm going to spend my time there. So it slowed their progress down through the network. It slowed their ability to achieve their goals. What was the capability we used? We put a message up to them. We told them. Yeah. That's not a technical capability. That's a cognitive capability right there. And I think those are the areas that I think we can really start playing. And I use the word playing. I think we can start experiencing and playing with shaping their understanding of what's going on. And that moves us onto the front foot rather than necessarily just bracing for the anticipated attack. And that's when we when we talk about being proactive, right? Proactive cyber defense is actually being on the front foot. Yeah. Um, you know, versus the the offensive, which is being on the attack, yeah, if you like. Yeah. yeah. And and for me, there's a lot in the defensive space where you can be proactive that really does change the odds in your favor or work towards shaping the adversary's experience of what's going on um, that we would almost be silly not to do. Uh, yes, we need to do a bit more research around some of these capabilities, but a lot of the thinking at the moment is perhaps a, a rather passive assurance-led mindset first. Let's tick all the boxes first. Let's make sure the lawyers are happy that we've done everything we can so that when we do get compromised, we've, we've, we've ticked the box rather than what can we do to make sure that when we do get compromised, we've really juiced the effectiveness of the attack? And that's as much of a conversation for the CEO as it is the CISO, because the CISO is focused on tech. The CEO is focused on what's the damage being caused? How is it stopping me doing my business? What can I do to mitigate that? How can we poison our own data sets in such a way that they don't know what data they're getting? Things like that. Again, not necessarily aggressive offense, but deliberate strategies within our own defense posture, within our own systems, to allow us to make it more of a challenge for the attacker. Looking at the broader threat landscape, Rob, the industry is as adversarial and as complex as it's ever been. What do you think are going to be the biggest trends or threats that we're going to face over the next few years? Where should we be thinking about? I think the, probably the first one I'd pick is, is probably an interesting one. I think burnout is going to be a real challenge and a lack of enthusiasm for the role. I think you'll see a lack of loyalty to organisations, and I don't mean that in a, in a particularly negative way. I think you'll see those frontline cyber individuals being hotly sought after by different organisations. And actually, the job can be relatively dull and boring, you know, dealing with alert logs, dealing with incidents, putting threads, seeing what's there. And fundamentally, I think we need to sex it up a bit more for them. You know, if these teams, chaps, ladies are on the front line of cyber warfare for an organization, for a, for a government activity, for an individual, why are we not making them feel like cyber warriors? That sounds remarkably, what's the word, I guess, uh, belittling of their activity. And you know, let's make them professional cyber warriors. What does training look like? What is the military training to make them a lethal fighting force? If we're not seeing them as a lethal fighting force defending the front line of our organization, then we're not valuing their contribution. In which case, why wouldn't they just get bored of doing the same data logging, the alert response and so on? Because there's going to be thousands of alerts. How do we, how do we get them? How do we empower them and give them that autonomy? to make effective decisions and choose courses of actions to engage with the adversary rather than necessarily just at best pull the thread after an incident and see what happens. Do you know one thing that's really struck me, Rob, as you've been talking is around the, that you mentioned cyber warriors. And I just think, you know, my partner's ex-military and he's got a number of medals in his drawer and actually, you know, a lot of accolade of actually having fought for his country. And I just think there's something really important in there in terms of actually how we recognise cyber warriors. 
and actually the work they do. And it feels like it's a miss, a missing a little bit in the industry at the moment. Um, you know, he's had to make some really difficult decisions about, and, and I don't know specifics, but you know, down to what kit do we deploy? Yeah. So if we deploy an armoured vehicle, we're sacrificing speed because we're taking on more armour. Why are we taking on more armour? Because we're anticipating incoming violence. So what does that look like in cyberspace? If we're working against a set of business processes and performance metrics, which mean we need to deliver X, Y, and Z, but we're not thinking about delivering X, Y, and Z in a compromised environment, I think we're being really naive. We, yeah. we really need to bring that expertise in the military. And I know there's loads of programs bring, about bringing military thinking and, and you know, bringing vets into the industry. And I'm not necessarily just saying it needs to be vets, but there's a valuable contribution. And too often I've seen um, military decision makers who are focusing on cyber delegate the thinking or the technology to the to the consultants and the experts outside because I know warfighting, I don't know cyber. No, actually, we need to blend the two together. So we, I think, Joe, we've seen that in our career, right? Military, military background, veterans, and that, that experience, that way of thinking, yeah. you know, tends to be very, very good cyber people. Oh, risk exactly, people. Because, because of these parallels that you're talking about, right? And I think that as well as an industry, we've got to continue to push on, right? We think we solve it with the technology. Now, we're not a technology provider by, you know, by, by that kind of nature. But the, the human aspects of it and really thinking about that is you can see why this move to gamification, how you're thinking about training and how we kind of all drive that is it's, it's definitely got merit, but it's not where, the, it's not where the, 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 the effort is, I don't think. And I think that's probably the miss. And it seems to be very an obvious win in terms of gamification of training for the, the individual member of the organisation to make sure they've learned to detect spear phishing or to not click on a link. But then we think job done, tick box, and actually here's an opportunity to really excite someone about their career on the front line, get them engaged, get them excited, and you know, skill them up more and, and make them a valuable contribution to the organization. And yet we just default to let's just put a normal course on, let's just give them that, and or they're already good at it, so they don't need that training. Yeah. And then we wonder why they move on somewhere else to do whatever they're doing again, but for more money somewhere else. Yeah. Default, we haven't we haven't invested in them. We we had um a customer joined us at an event a few weeks ago and he was talking about an incident that they've had and it was it was quite well well publicised, but we went to help them out. And it did end up as a straight-out shooting match between one of their youngest members of the team. Well, it's a war of attrition, right? Who could who could last the longest? Yeah. And, and it went on and on and on. And, and then, you know, just a couple of other areas that you picked up on there around the burnout, they spent a lot of time and money on investing in, I don't know what they actually called it, but kind of mental health and coaching, et cetera, post-incident. Yeah he would not have been able to have a go at it. But well, he it goes, it goes it back to your, your comment on um, you know giving military equivalent medals for yeah. these individuals, right? Yeah. They, they are literally working day and night yeah. to defend their organisation. Yeah. That, that takes its toll physically and mentally. And sometimes it's that thank you that's enough. You know, it really yeah. is. Um, yeah. And But it's also, if you think of some of the military examples, there's been some real instances of and PTSD come in where the military had rules of engagements that didn't allow them to fight back properly. So what lessons are we learning from then? If we've got individuals on the front line in cyber yep. and they want to do things but they can't because of corporate constraints or, or legal constraints or so on, and how do we manage that? Because that's going to have the fallout on the individual or the individual's relationship with their supervisor or the organisation. Mm. You're going to have disciplinary issues. You know, I'm, I'm not making this up. This is just me looking at other domains where they've had challenges and gone, okay, what can we learn from there? Yep. And I think that's what we can bring across as well. Yep. And ultimately, you're going to empower a competitive advantage that you'd be silly not to take advantage of. Yeah. yeah. So why would you not invest in that? And I, I really like, um, you know, inspired me with this concept of building cyber warriors because, you know, we, we see this in uh, security operation centers. We see this in our own security operation center about how people can get pigeonholed into certain functions or certain roles. You know, you're a level one analyst, you're a level two analyst, you're a level three analyst, you're a SOC engineer, you know, you're a threat hunter, you're an incident responder. Um, 
and as you say, you know, early on in the career, it's it's quite uh, you know it's quite a repeatable exercise. You know, it's uh, it's it's. I want to get to the how. How how do you create these cyber warriors? How do you how do you move beyond the technical side and and sort of get rid of these kind of barriers and roles and actually get people together as a as a fighting force? So I think it's a perennial question. I yeah, guess. I, I think it's <laughs> a universal question. How, how do the military do it? Where are we at with the military? And I think a lot of it comes down to cognitive agility. Um, and I think that's something we're going to see more and more of in cybersecurity. If that was one, of, not necessarily a threat, but I think that's one of the trends that's going to come. And how do we empower people to critically challenge the situation? How do we get them to pull the thread when they something doesn't feel quite right there and they don't know why? Rob, I have to be honest. When I came into this, actually, you know, you focused very much on the human and the emotive and the and the motivation side of things. You know, I did come in about you know honeypots and uh, tokens, and you know it's really hard to deploy all this stuff in a production environment. And how do you manage all this? And you sort of hear horror stories about um, infrastructure going wild, if you like, or unmanaged. Any learnings, best practice? You know, anyone done this really well on the you know integrating deception within within cyber defense? I think we're in a, a nascent space, and, and I say that because. A lot of the use of deception has been deception for threat intelligence. So we're seeing the deployment of honeypots to trap, observe, learn from, and have that second order of benefit for us. And I, you know, that's a valuable activity. I would pick on a range of different capabilities, but I think something like the Thinks capability, that, that you know, the canaries in your systems, it just give you that alert sensor to say, something's going on here, someone's here, you can do something about it. It doesn't have to be too complex. It could be really simple and effective. And I really like that about that. But I think that's just the start of the value of deception. For me, it's that shift from deception for threat intelligence and understanding through to deception to engage and shape the behavior of the adversaries. And I think there are some early examples of of the value that brings. And some of those examples are being codified. So we're seeing mentions of it in the NIST framework um, in the US and in the DOD expectation of suppliers to be using those frameworks, there's an expectation that they will be stepping up and deploying deceptive capabilities in their defenses. So I think that is, a, I guess, an indicator that there's a reassurance that there's value there. I think in terms of practical examples of successes that we can learn from, I think there's some really interesting examples where perhaps public programs are showing the value rather than necessary corporate programs, because why would you necessarily share at the first point? So I think there is that keep it behind closed doors and not share. When we are seeing organizations begin to play with deception and, and see how they can use it effectively. But I think we're in that field where a lot of people are very risk averse to using deception or deception is the thing you do once you've done everything else. And I think there'll be a flip at some point. And why, why is that? Is that uh, scared to enter it, scared to do it? Or I think it's behind it. Yeah. I think a little bit of everything. Um, and I think it's the regulatory body. I think there'll be a shift at some point in the insurance market, perhaps in the regulatory market. You know, At what point will you get a discount for having a car alarm or a burger alarm in your house? Will it reduce your premium? At what point will the insurance companies say, well, we start expecting to see X, Y, and Z, and some of that would be proactive measures? And I start. Oh, that's where I think there'll be the tipping point in the change. There's a really good program the FBI are introducing to help government suppliers in the US, You know, making sure their data is as effectively obfuscated at times so that not that it just doesn't appear but then you've they've got the challenge that when the attackers get hold of that data because the chances are they will they don't know what they're getting hold of there's a, a great example from the cia back in the 80s where it led to the soviets the cia and, and the fbi noticed that the soviets were gaining access to large amounts of research data and stealing it back into into the soviet union so they they poisoned it they quite simply made sure that the research findings that were being stolen weren't necessarily as accurate as they could have been. And they built a pipeline back in Siberia. And for some mysterious reason, that pipeline then burst into flames and could be seen from space. Now, 
there's a lot of interesting considerations about that in terms of this was a compromised deployment of some research they had acquired from another organization, which was deliberately put there. So actually at that point, when the Soviets realized something went bang and went wrong, they had to question everything else they had stolen. Every single bit of data they had done for however long that program was, was then compromised, even if it wasn't compromised. And they had to put effort into validating that, reassuring it as well. And I think we're seeing similar things in terms of a lot of the um, acquisition of data by the sort of Chinese cyber operations teams stealing latest engines of planes, warplanes and so on. They're taking that data, but now they're having to put effort in. And what can we do to maximize the effort? That almost feels outside the scope of the CISO role. Again, CISO role is about protecting that data and making sure it doesn't get stolen. But then there's also another team that should be focusing on, okay, let's assume the worst, zero trust or whatever it might need to be, whatever the right phrase is. But what can we do to that information to make it as useless to the attacker if they get it? And I think that moves us into a much more um, cyber operations mindset, which brings in the question about cyber skills and cyber warriors, because actually, what are we doing to give those cyber operations the floor for, the floor for cyber security? And I think there's a lot we can do beyond the traditional defensive mesh. I think that's fascinating when you think about that not residing necessarily with the CISO and actually the delineation that would need to happen to actually kind of enact that. Um, Rob, I've been wanting to ask you this, though, since I read your background. Can you tell me a little bit more about chasing pirates? <laughs> um, yeah, it sounds really exciting. Um, so let me just paint the picture. I deployed over to the, the coalition headquarters in Bahrain, the headquarters there, in about May a few years ago when the Somali piracy issues were really prevalent. Um, so if you think of Captain Phillips going on in terms of a lot of British assets being hijacked and you know lots of commercial shipping being held hostage for one of them, it was horrible for some of those mariners for being there for 200, 300 days or longer. So I deployed out to Bahrain to work as part of a coalition that were focusing on uh, counter-piracy, counter-narcotics in, in that area. And I did sort of seven to eight months out there. I actually came back with less of a suntan um, <laughs> than when I went out there. So it wasn't all play, and, and, I promise. And uh, that you have now? Uh, it, <laughs> uh, yeah. From Somalia to Shoreham. Yeah, it's, it's amazing when the south coast of England is is, is offers more of a suntan than the, than the Middle <laughs> East. So uh, obviously I was hard at work over there. And I'm still hard at work here, but the working from home can be done outside these days. Um, <laughs> Whereas you couldn't do it in a classified environment, or at least that's a line I'm sticking with. <laughs> yeah, you, you convinced yourself to that. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, my role was very much focused on working with the um, planners that moving the military assets around positioning. We'd made a decision that the best way to defend against pirate attacks, and, and you know, the, the parallels are obvious with cyber, was to actually create a, a motorway through the Gulf of Aden. So we would position our assets along the motorway to make sure that we would respond to a piracy incident in time. That meant we had to think about how quickly we had to respond. So the average time of an attack from a, a pirate ship coming up and uh, attacking a, a big tanker or whatever it might be, was you know, probably had 30 minutes at most. So we had to make sure we had a response capability within 30 minutes. That would then allow us to allocate how many ships we needed in that corridor, as it were. So it was fascinating because, again, the complexity meant that the pirates were fundamentally desperate individuals. We were picking up pirates who were float at sea, who didn't have enough fuel to get home, who didn't have any food on board. And the average salary, if they carried on doing the farming they were doing, was probably about $26 a year. And here they were, you know, desperately looking for a target. And and, and it, it worked quite effectively. They could bring bring a target home, get some ransom going. You know, you've got to have a lot of sympathy for them. I'm not saying it's the right thing, but you can understand the predicament they're in. And then, actually, here's a coalition force trying to work out how to predict or to protect a range of organizations that none of us were responsible for, com commercial organizations that as a, a government that we've got to protect the you know, mariners on, on, the, on the seafarers, but actually 
who owns who and, and so and, and the other aspect of which was really interesting was that this is a multinational coalition but we were also engaging with the Russians and the Indians and the Greeks and so it really was a complex geopolitical situation an age of relatively early cybersecurity considerations and an age where a lot of our research and development for IT and communications had been about communicating with each other or commuting amongst ourselves or with our colleagues but not necessarily communicating securely with people who are outside the wire so we might be really good communicating with the Americans at a classified level, but trying to work out how to communicate with the Indians, for example, was impossible. So how did you confidently and effectively share information on sensitive military deployments to organizations that weren't necessarily in that first grouping of your organizational remit policy, which again comes back into cyber in terms of data sharing, privacy, inf yeah. information control. Direct so. applicability to uh, the cyber domain. I yeah. think that's it. As I mean, as I listen to you throughout the you know, the, the, the time we've been chatting, right, the, the, the clear parallels, you've, you've explained situations in a military sense with the MOD from a piracy perspective and a cyber perspective. And just listening to your stories, they're all, they're, they're just clear similarities between them and just how much, you know, kind of the overlap is. And, and going back to that human factors piece of what are people motivated by, whether it's fame or money. And actually, what are the drivers? And then how do you actually kind of, you know, use that in your own strategies? It's just fascinating. Thanks, and, Rob. And certainly for me, that, that was where I did a lot of work looking at coercion and deterrence. So the idea of how do we get a world leader to change their mind and back down in during warfare? You know, rather than plan everything against fighting to the defeat level of force where one side falls over completely and the other side wins, how do we get them to make a decision to stop? And again, thinking about deterrence in an age of nuclear missiles, deterrence is quite a key key capability and mutually assured destruction. So if I can deter someone from taking a course of action I don't want them to take, that's really successful. But all of that is involved in doing having the effect in the head of the, of the adversary before using the technical capability. It might be at best showing the capability, but actually it's about them knowing the capabilities there and they can't detect it, they can't see it, if you think the UK example of having a submarine. So where does that fit into cyberspace? And there's been some really interesting work looking at what does deterrence in cyber look like? How do we deter an attacker? So it isn't necessarily the same fixed concepts of deterrence as we've seen in the nuclear age of geopolitical standoffs between different continents. It's actually looking at the a much more interpersonal deterrence. So how do I make that person really think about if this is worthwhile for them to do? When they've got the pressures of, if you think of the Conti leaks and others, of organizational structures putting pressure on them, they need to get this number of targets done in a certain time. They need to have this much of sex. They need to bring this money in. These are factors they need to think about, and we need to shape them against that as well. So it's a much more competitive cognitive landscape than I think we normally give it credit for, but I think there's loads of value there to, exp to tease out more. Any last words, pearls of wisdom we've got? We've, you know, our audience is risk leaders, business leaders, technical people, uh, cyber, new people to the industry. Any any last words of wisdom? I guess for me, there's there's two factors. Think diverse, think holistically, wherever you can, and always think about the human. Always bring that human back. If your thing is just a technical process or you're seeing it as just a strategy to think about the implementation of technology, stop, pause bring it back and think about how we can bring the cognitive element back in the decision-making process and how we can use that to our advantage. That sounds like pretty excellent advice to me, Rob, and a great note to end on. Uh, thank you very much for joining us and for your valuable insights. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rob. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. You can also visit our Cyber Hub for blogs, articles, videos, and cybersecurity advice at adama.com. Cyber Insiders. Untold stories from behind the cyber front line. Follow and rate on your podcast app. Adama. Together, we've got this.